Good morning. Just take your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided in the pews, you'll find that on page 448. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, you have said that just as the rain and the snow water the earth and make it bring forth and sprout, so will your word be that goes out from your mouth, that it won't return to you empty, but that it will accomplish your purpose, succeed in the thing for which you sent it. May that be true of your word today, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we launch into our text this morning, I do want to make uh, an exciting announcement. As you probably saw, we're handed when you came in or you got it in your mailbox. Um, we have uh, a new candidate for elder in our congregation. Kevin Shingleton uh, is our newest candidate for elder. Uh, Kevin has gone through the process that every other uh, elder has gone through and has been examined and is unanimously recommended that we uh, ordain him. And so as the process goes, uh, we don't do the same kind of vote that we do with uh, deacons at the, at the end of the year for the new year. What we do is we ask you, we, get, we provided for you if you're a member of uh, Gray Road, we are asking you to either affirm the elder's decision to ordain Kevin as an elder or raise any concerns regarding his qualification. And I can tell you that both the elders and Kevin would take anything that might be raised uh, with a sober mind, because if there is something that we're not seeing uh, for his good, for our good, for the church, we would want that to be known. Um, this, is, this is a time to think about what it says in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And so we're asking you to affirm over the next four weeks or raise concerns. And uh, Lord willing, if affirmation is what is received or if any concerns that may come up 
uh, are dealt with or answered or, or aren't actually concerns once we get to the bottom of them, then, um, then on August 19, we will ordain uh, Kevin to be an elder among us, to be our elder. And so um, I said this to the membership class. I say that on purpose. When, when, I, when, we, when we ordain an elder, he is our elder. He's not your elder, like I'm over here and you're over there. Uh, we all need to be shepherded. And so we need elders among us. Um, it is when actually elders cease to be shepherded, particularly by one another, that things can go terribly, terribly wrong. And we, we don't want that in any way, shape, or form. So I'm very excited about that. I'm excited. Uh, Kevin has served here for decades uh, faithfully and uh, is uh, a, a godly man and a really gifted teacher by the Lord's goodness toward him. And, uh, he, and so when we were to ordain him, that would be us receiving him as a gift of the risen Christ. That's what Ephesians 4 teaches, that, that pastors and teachers are gifts of the risen Christ to the church. So I hope you'll pray for him. Take time to fill that out. We will take those in the kiosks all the next, uh, all the next month. We are creatures of habit, aren't we? Last week we ended the service with pre-recorded music, and many of us had no clue what to do at that point. Like once the pre-recorded music came on, we were like, what church are we in? What are we supposed to sing with this? What are we supposed to do with this? The reason why we are doing that is to offer some moments in which we can reflect without feeling a sense of immediacy to have to move. Uh, so once I pray at the end, the, the guys will, will, will play something uh, that will help us just to contemplate. It's not... It's not necessarily, it, we're not going to sing it congregationally or anything. But being a creature of habit, uh, which I am, uh, I typically, my, my bride would tell you that I'm quite, uh, quite the creature of habit when it comes to where I buy the sodas that I drink. Uh, because I can tell you, look, if you want to know where the best fountain Coke Zero is, you see me after the service, and I will tell you once once we deal with the people who actually have real problems, all right? But, uh, but uh, so anyway, so I was at uh, one of these treasured gas stations this week, and I was getting into my car to leave, and I saw a dad and a son standing on the sidewalk, and the son, it was like a little game of chicken, the son was trying to get around the dad in order to get into the gas station, and in my imagination, there was some snack or some drink that he wanted in there, uh, and Dad had already said no, and now we're playing the, if I can get around Dad, somehow I'll be able to get it game. So he dodges left, Dad blocks him, he goes right, Dad blocks him, and uh, this uh, it was like a little game of chess right there in the parking lot until the boy got angry, and he starts yelling, and Dad at that point seeing that this game is not going to just be a game, he picked up his son, holding him parallel to the ground, and began to walk toward his car. And the boy's arms are flailing, and the boy's legs are kicking, and he takes it because that boy did not want to submit to Dad's authority. He was raging against Dad. But the Dad won, if that's what we mean by winning. I've been in similar situations, maybe you have as well. I remember 
once being called home from work. I was just working not too far from the house, and I came home because uh, one of our children was in the midst of a, a, a fit that Susan was just having difficulty and uh, needed what she affectionately calls the daddy voice. And I had the capacity to come home at that point, and I did. And the same thing, flailing of arms, kicking of legs, screaming. And um, when I finally got to the point where the child would calm down enough that we could converse, I sat and I cupped the child's cheeks in my hands, looked in the eyes and said, Child, you will not win. Now, what I meant at that moment, I was struggling at the moment. I just meant I'm a lot more stubborn than you. And you are not going to win. I am your dad, and you're not going to win. And these circumstances, the one at the gas station, the one in this bedroom, the one that plays out in a whole host of things, is actually a bit of a microcosm of the problem with humanity in general. Because all of us come into this world flailing our arms and kicking our legs against any authority that is not me. This is what everyone wants. Everyone wants to not be under anyone's authority unless they absolutely agree with everything that I say and they never contradict me, which means, in essence, I'm the one in authority and you're just a puppet who does what I say. And God has spoken about this problem in Psalm 2. The world is flailing its arms and kicking its legs and screaming for its own way, wanting to be rid of the tyranny of God and His authority. But you see, God is the one in authority. He has created all things. And one basic rule of the universe is if you create it, you're in charge of it. This is why in societal terms we have things like copyrights and trademarks and patents. But God has absolute authority over His creation. And Psalm 2, as it were, is God looking at the world in all, hol- in all His holiness and His purity and His power and having the world in His hands and saying, you will not win. You cannot win. And so we come to Psalm 2 to see the nations raging while we hear God laughing at the very notion that creatures would set themselves up against Him. And what we learn from this psalm is that rebellion incurs the wrath of God, but repentance finds refuge in God. Rebellion incurs the wrath of God, but repentance finds refuge in God. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through 
the psalm pretty quickly because what I want to do is actually to walk us through four scenes that we find in this psalm, and then I want us to look at three stages of development because over time this psalm develops over time, not as David's writing it, but over the history of salvation, this psalm develops. And then I want us to see four implications. So four scenes, three stages of development, four uh, Im- implications. So this is a way to make a three-point sermon into an 11-point sermon without anybody noticing what just happened. All right? Shh, don't tell anybody. All right? So first of all, we want to see four scenes, and they, they come as we just walk through uh, the psalm. Scene one is rebellion. Verses one to three, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This is not actually a genuine question. This is the, this is the question of what, what, what are they thinking? What is the world thinking here? Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is a world in rebellion to God, an angry rebellion. It never starts out as a game with the world. We just are angry from the get-go. We want our way. And when we don't get it, we're angry. As sinful human beings, I mean the, the tyranny of God, that God would dare to ask us to submit, feels like handcuffs. It feels like we're tied up and bound, and we can't really be who we are, and We can't really be free, and I can't really express myself because God has bound us. This is the unbelieving view of the law, of any law, that contradicts what I already believe ought to happen. That it's binding. We see His morality, His truth, His law as a straitjacket, and we desperately want to get out into what we think is freedom, into autonomy, into being a law unto ourselves. And this rage against God in the Old Testament takes a very physical form. I mean, nations literally come and attack God's people. They attack, and when people attack God's people, when the nations attack God's people in the Old Testament, this is why the psalmist, this is why others are always praying for vindication, because God's name is tied to His people. God's glory is tied to what He's doing on earth. He is doing something. He has made promises. He is going to fulfill them. This is why Moses finds himself praying, God, you cannot obliterate these people. Because what will the nations think of you if you do that? Not these poor, poor people. You need to, you know, be nicer to them. What will people think about you, God, if, if you go back on this? These are your people. But here, the, the, world, wants, the world wants nothing to do with God. It doesn't take long to get from David to Indianapolis, does it? To find a world 
Those aren't two geographic locations. This was written a long time ago. You live in Indianapolis. It doesn't take long to get from there to here, does it? To find a world kicking and screaming against God. In fact, when Christians are deceived, when Christians think they ought to follow the path of the world, when Christians begin to believe that freedom means disregarding morality, we're kicking and screaming against God. When we read something in the Bible that we don't like and we say, well, well, let me just tell you, that was then, but this is now. I mean, I had a friend look at me. I was talking to him about reconciliation, and it was when we moved back to Marion. And I've told you this story before, but I'm going to tell you again today. See, I knowingly do that right now. I know that I've told this story. I'm going to tell it again. And he's standing right in front of me, and I said, and, we just, and I just kept going text after text after text about forgiveness about reconciliation about these things and he looks at me and he says Toby I know what the Bible says but you have to live in the real world now he said it like that but dear friends my my friend I still call my friend he never changed his mind on that he was kicking and screaming against God and His Word. That's what was happening. So what we find here is not an issue unique to Israel in the Old Testament. What we find here is a universal reality. This is the tendency of the human heart. Away from God. Away from submission. Kicking against the goads. The second scene is wrath. So verses 4 to 9. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king. It actually should be, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. There's an emphatic I there. My holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you as, as, of, as of me and I, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. While the world rages, the Lord laughs. While, the wor- while rulers counsel together to gain power, God speaks and says, I have set my king on my holy hill. While the world wants to break free of God's authority, God promises that his power will not be denied and that rebels will be broken with a rod of iron and dashed to pieces. This is not, this is not soft language here. You can't get around that. That is hard, it is strong, and it is true. This whole dashing to pieces the potter's vessel, this actually was something that happened in Egypt. The the Pharaoh would take a vessel when he comes into power and he would break it, and he would break it so thoroughly that you couldn't put it back together again. 
and it was a demonstration of his power that he that nothing will stand before him but god says in isaiah 30 it's breaking the re- the rebellious people's breaking is like that of a potter's vessels that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern he's saying this vessel is so utterly broken those who rebel against god will be so utterly punished that you, I mean, if you imagine, uh, you know, if you, you've broken a vase, right, and you blamed it on your sister, but you've broken a vase and you've been able to pick up something with it, right? There's a big piece and you can scoop something up with it or you could put a little water in it. And God is saying that when, when His wrath comes through the rule of His king, you won't be able to do that. You won't be able to find a shard big enough to pick anything up, to put any water in, it, it will all be gone. That's the kind of wrath that we read about in those verses. Third scene is rebellion. Uh, sorry, third scene is repentance, verses 10 to 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. With all that imagery in mind, with the rod of iron coming, with the the pot dashed into pieces, now the Lord says, therefore, be wise. This is the way that Solomon speaks to his son in the Proverbs. Now, O my sons, listen. Be wise. Be warned. Don't take this lightly. Don't brush this off. Don't think that this doesn't apply to you. Don't think that you're okay. And then the call goes out. Serve the Lord. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Don't seek autonomy. Don't be an authority unto yourself. Stop thinking that that you've got it right when you try to break free from God. Rather, submit to Him. That's what service is. That's why you would rejoice with trembling. That's why you would kiss the sun. Actually, quite literally, it probably means to kiss the feet of that one. To bow down, which was a a way to homage the Son. A way to show submission to the Son. Submission to this anointed one who God has set on His holy hill to rule as King. Repent. See it so far? And then the last phrase, the last scene is that of refuge. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Actually, Psalm 2 is a bit of a second half of a two-part introduction to the Psalms. Psalm 1 begins out, Blessed is the man who... And it ends with, The way of the wicked will perish. And it's as if Psalm 2 is placed there to pick up on that theme and say, not just the wicked little people, the wicked who are the most powerful in the world will perish. 
So repent, and then you will be, there's this chiasm, which means, which is an X, so everything comes to this point where the king is on God's holy hill, and it comes back out, this is what the blessed, you'll be blessed. You want to be the blessed man? Take refuge in God. Serve the Lord. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. You see those scenes? You just move from one scene to another as you move through the psalm. So that's the four scenes. Next, I want us to look at the three stages of development. Because this psalm is a bit like a tree. Well, oddly, you know, I, I don't actually mean that as a pun, but it is like a tree. In that, when it was written, it had buds. You ever, you know, a fruit tree, right? There's little buds, and then it flowers, and then there's fruit. So there's these little buds here as David is writing. And then there's going to come a time of blooming and then full fruitfulness. And that's the three stages of development. The first stage is with the coronation of many kings. Now, Acts 4 tells us that this psalm was written by David. Now, most of the psalms David writes are in conjunction with something, right? He usually tells us or we get some kind of clue. This one, not so much, except that his language just says, you know... That sounds a lot like one of the most important promises in the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 7. There are certain chapters in the Bible that you just need to know. Like if you're going to skip your way through the Bible, you need to make sure you land on those, uh, on those chapters. And 2 Samuel 7 is one of them. Because here, David is, tells God, you know what I'm going to do for you, God? I'm going to build you a real nice place. And we're going to put the ark there. And God says, well, that's well and good, son. But I'm actually going to do something. And this is what God says in 2 Samuel 7. I'm only going to read uh, part of it. He says, beginning in verse 6, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God never did that. He never told, asked anybody, Why haven't you built me a house? Now, therefore, thus you shall say, speaking through Nathan, to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with, st with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, 
your throne shall be established forever. Just underline the whole thing. All right? And I am convinced that in light of what God had said to David there, God has written Psalm, uh, David has written Psalm 2 under the inspiration of the Spirit. Where else does this language come from? You are my son. This peace from enemies, they're going to be dashed to pieces. That he's, God's going to put on the throne, on his holy hill, a king who's going to rule forever. And Psalm 2 says, the nations will be your heritage, the earth will be your possession. There'll be no more enemies, there'll be no more rebellion, there'll be no more rising up. This is good stuff. This is actually why uh, many, believe this, many believe this is a coronation psalm, one that would be used when a new king came into office to be reminded of this. I mean, there was great pomp and ceremony when it, came to, when it comes to changes of power. Trumpets blow. Oil is used to anoint as a symbol that this man who is now king is going to stand in God's place and represent God and His authority over His people. A physical document, a decree, would be given to the king as a blessing and also as an explanation of his responsibilities. I mean, just think, think of the pomp that we go through in installing a new president. There are lots of things that kind of have developed over the years as to what that day looks like, but the thing that stays steady, that must happen, is that the president must take the oath of office to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And he gets up and he takes this oath. And generally, somewhere in the crowd, there's hope in that moment. Whether it's a president today or a king in Israel in days of old, there's hope that maybe this will be the king that God is going to set up. Maybe things are going to get turned around. Maybe things are going to get better. And what the people then learned is what we learn today, is that no matter who you put in office, there is apparently no single human being who's going to be able to turn this thing around. Reverse the course of sinfulness in humanity. Because after Solomon's reign, the kingdom divides. And things start going downhill until 722 B.C. when the Assyrians obliterate the northern kingdom. you got to wonder, those northern kingdom Jews, right? They're thinking, uh, Psalm 2, Psalm 2, Psalm 2, we're obliterated. But there's Judah. But then about a century and a half later, they're obliterated. They're going into exile. And the enemies are no longer, these enemies are not quivering. These enemies are not concerned about being dashed. These enemies are not concerned about a rod of iron. These enemies are winning. And so as you move into the exile, the coronation of many kings becomes clinging to 
Psalm 2 for hope for a particular king, for the king of kings that Isaiah spoke of, for the righteous branch of Jeremiah, for the shepherd who will take place of all these other ridiculous shepherds who can't do the job. They're looking for the one true king. You just have to think, what is going on here, right? As you're in chains, walking into Babylon, you think, hey, you remember Psalm 2? What's going on with that? What's this got to do with that? I thought we were going to be ruling this place by now. Do you ever look at the world and think that way? What is, go- what, is- what is going on? How could it possibly get more crazy than this? Which brings us to, from the bud to the flower, the coming of the king. The coming of the king. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. He is the one that God sends. He is the Messiah that God promised. He is the king of Isaiah. He is the branch in Jeremiah. He is the shepherd in Ezekiel. He is all of it. At his baptism, just like a king would be anointed, he's anointed. The Spirit comes and descends upon Him and you have these words that call Psalm 2 to mind in Mark chapter 1. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. When He rode into Jerusalem for that last week to be crucified, He rode on a donkey fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Interestingly enough, if you go to 1 Kings chapter 1 and you hear David giving instruction on how to, how to coronate his son and install him in office, do you know how he's supposed to get there? On a mule. Take him from the mule to the place that he's going to become king. And here Jesus is. Pilate asks him if he's the king of the Jews. Jesus affirms. The sign hangs above him. Not I claim to be the king of the Jews, but king of the Jews. And when Jesus dies on that day, when when the king comes and the king attacks evil in a way no one would expect evil to be attacked, he wins. The enemies go down. That's what Colossians 2 tells us. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And the death of Jesus wasn't, but the death of Jesus wasn't just simply a conquering of enemies on the cross, the wrath against our rebellion. You see, we are the kings and the peoples and the rulers and the nations. We are the kickers and the screamers. And God has dashed Jesus to pieces so that we might be put together. He ruled Him with a rod of iron so that God might raise His scepter and accept us into His presence. 
And all who turn from their sin and trust in this king, turn to this king, kiss this son, serve this son, rejoice with trembling before him, trust him to be their sufficient savior, believing that on the cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for me. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Anyone who would come to him by faith, would not receive wrath, but would enter into refuge. You see, that's why the, 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 the Bible says that, that those who believe in Jesus are hidden in Him. Jesus said, come unto me and you will have rest for your soul. And then on the third day, this whole... Um, this whole business of uh, I have begotten you is more about God bringing this man out. It's interesting that in Acts 13, verse 33, uh, Paul is speaking about the resurrection of Jesus, and he quotes this, as in on the day of the resurrection, it's at God beget Jesus once again, and he's publicly on display... As the Savior, that's what Romans 4, 1.4 says, that Jesus was declared publicly to be the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness through the resurrection of the dead. If you wondered whether Jesus was king, just look at the third day. It was so obvious to people there. It was so obvious to His disciples. that Do you know what they asked Him? Do you know what they asked Him? Lord, they asked the resurrected Christ before He ascended. Lord, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because it was that obvious to them. This is the king. This is the one of whom God says, you are my son today, I have begotten you. They expected him to be king. And he... He flowered through the death and resurrection. The flower of Jesus as king has bloomed. And then the full fruitfulness is yet to come. The consummation of Christ's kingdom. The promise of God to pour out wrath on rebellion, to give refuge to those who repent, to those who serve Him, buds in Israel, blooms in the day of Christ's death and resurrection, and will come to full fruition in the future. So, I'm only going to read without explaining a few places beginning in Revelation chapter 11. Listen carefully to the language. Beginning in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. 
for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear, rejoice with trembling, your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Chapter 19. Verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress, winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice calling to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. That sounds a lot like dashing to pieces where there is nothing. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on, a horse, sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended and that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw, the, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And then in chapter 22, the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street, the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, Yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, 
These words are trustworthy and true. That's where it's going. That's the full fruition. That's the fullness of what Psalm 2 means. It is a reminder of God's promise as it buds in the life of Israel. It's the sealing of that promise in the death and resurrection of Jesus as it flowers. And it is the fruition of that promise come to pass in the future when He brings everything to pass that He has said. His King will be on the hill. Those who rebel will face His wrath. Those who repent will have refuge forever. That's good news. Psalm 2 is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it takes us. To its essence and to its hope. And we'll see that fruit one day. Right? Do you believe that? Four implications of all of this. The first three for those who are believers. One, hope. Hope. The world will sometimes seem as if it's winning. It will press in, it will press down. Evil seems to have no restraint whatsoever. Cling to Psalm 2 for hope. Cling to Psalm 2 knowing that God will not allow evil to have the last word. That's good news. That's great news. Second, holiness. You say, how is this, how is holiness an implication of this gospel? Dear friend, the, the Bible calls us to stop being like the world, stop conforming to the world, which means. We need to stop flailing and kicking and screaming against the will of God for our lives. Because while we don't face wrath, dear friends, God, just like a faithful father, will not let his children wander without disciplining them. The discipline of the Lord is meant to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The difficulties of life, the difficulties in response, the way that we just mess up our whole lives... The, the reason why it feels like everything's messed up is because everything is messed up. And we think the way back is to fix the circumstance when the way back is through repentance. To repent of kicking and screaming against God. To repent of being more like the world than the king of the world. I mean, even when we say that suffering is meant to make us more like Jesus, you know that part of that means stop not being like Jesus, right? When you say, this is meant to teach me uh, patience, okay? 
What is the problem? I'm not patient. I'm kicking and screaming against God and His call for me to be patient. I'm not forgiving. I'm kicking and screaming against His command to be kind and tenderhearted and forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven me. So the reason why suffering comes is because sin is still present and God wants to squeeze in such a way. God, what a gift, isn't it? That God would squeeze our lives in such a way that we could actually see what's really wrong with us so that we could turn from it and turn to Him and turn to the King and serve Him and rejoice with trembling and kiss the Son and bow to Jesus' feet and say, Oh Lord, give me grace to walk. Holiness should come out of Psalm 2. Evangelism should come out of Psalm 2. Shouldn't it? Do you, do you want to be more motivated in evangelism? Be more convinced that Psalm true, 2 is true. Be more convinced that there is no other refuge and that the wrath of God is undeniable and unquenchable apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay committed to taking this gospel to the ends of the earth because no one on the earth will be exempt. Stay committed to taking the gospel to the end of the street. Just this morning, just this morning, I said, let's stand up, let's say hello to one another before we begin singing. Do you remember that? It's been a long time since then, but do you remember when we did that? My son comes running up the stairs to talk to me. I kneel down to hear what he... I thought he was just going to give me a hug and say, Good morning, Dad. You know, do what Daddy said to do. Come go say hello to somebody. But he didn't. He came up and he stood and he looked me right in the eye and said, Daddy, when is someone going to be baptized again? I said, So what makes you ask that question? He said, I just really like seeing people baptized. Now, there are some churches in which you can sit and you ask that question and all eyes go to the one pastor that's up front, right? When are you going to? But dear friends, all of us should feel that burden. All of us should long for that, shouldn't we? All of us should say, oh, Lord, God, when will we share the gospel this week? Because we want to see someone baptized professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just going through an act, but seeing them born again through the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Spirit. Daddy, when's somebody else going to be baptized? Gray Road, when's somebody else going to be baptized? Don't back into a corner and tell me, well, when the sovereign Lord moves. No, just listen. Yes, yes. Would you like to be part of that?
Would you like to be the tool used by God to bring someone to Jesus Christ and see their eternity changed? The answer to that question can't come in this room, my friends, unless an unbeliever just comes up and taps you on the shoulder, you know, after the service and says, hey, uh, can you tell me how to uh, become a Christian? Okay. It's going to happen as we go about our lives taking the gospel to the ends of the street and the end of the cubicle line and the end of the hallway and the end of the, 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 end of the bleachers, the end of the everywhere we go. So for the Christian, there is hope in this psalm. For the Christian, there's a call to holiness in this psalm. For the Christian, there's a reminder of the significance of what we say when we want to share the gospel with someone. And for the unbeliever, be wise. Be warned. Repent. Because there is either wrath from God or refuge in Christ. There is no other spot. There is wrath from God or there is refuge in Christ. Will you continue to rebel? Even a well-behaved refusal to repent and believe is raging rebellion in God's eyes. Parents don't feel better when their child calmly looks them in the eye and says, no. It doesn't make it better. Or will you repent and find in Christ a refuge? Will you turn to him and find rest for your soul? Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We'll take just a moment for reflection, and then I will close the service in prayer.